1: Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today, I'm in the company of Shundraan Thomas, president of Northern Trust Asset Management, which is more than $900 billion in assets under management. Some quick context before we get started. Earlier this year, Shandorn published a widely read, deeply personal open letter, Breaking the Silence, about racial injustice in America. As he told readers, far too often, and for far too many, the response to discrimination is silence. Shandorn committed to breaking the silence and has used his voice to encourage leaders to take actions to address the systemic racism that persists within our society. Our conversation took place two days after media declared Joe Biden the winner in the U.S. presidential elections, an election that many considered a referendum on racial justice in America. We talked about how he has built a diverse senior leadership team, the values that form the foundation and pillars of the firm, what compassionate leadership looks like during a pandemic, and whether or not he is encouraged about the possibility of real change. As you'll hear, Shandorn is deeply thoughtful, engaging, and warm. He's also candid about the challenges ahead. I hope you enjoy our
0: conversation.
1: Shandorn Thomas, welcome.
0: Thank you. Good to be with you today.
1: Uh, I'm so pleased to have you on the show today. Uh, Before we get into the heart of our conversation, though, I do want to say thank you. Um, The asset management industry really owes you a debt of gratitude, in your open letter, Breaking the Silence, you really drew back the curtain on race in America. And over the past few months, you've been a tireless champion for equity, diversity, and inclusion in the industry. And I just want to acknowledge the toll this must have taken on you, both in terms of time and emotional well being. So thank you.
0: Uh, you're really gracious to share that. Thank you so much.
1: So you're joining us today from Chicago and I thought it might be fun to start with a quote from former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel and it's from 2009 when he was the White House Chief of Staff and this is what he said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. What I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you couldn't do before and you certainly exemplify that sentiment. So for listeners who don't have the context of your open letter to corporate America, take us back a few months to the moment that compelled you to speak out on race, which is such a taboo, and what that journey has been like for you.
0: All right. Well, well, Well. thank you um, for even being uh, willing to enter into this dialogue. And, and, and it's great because when you quoted Ram, many people only quote the first part, And the the full context of what he said is so important, because oftentimes when we are in a crisis, and and the very etymology of that word, a a decision point, right, it gives us that opportunity that he spoke of oftentimes to do things um, maybe in ways that we hadn't before, even things that weren't possible before. As it pertains to uh, the moment that we were in, uh, as we know, things sort of were building up. Um, to uh, really what I would say was a dramatic uh, inflection point uh, with George Floyd. Obviously, it wasn't the first issue. Uh, We know before that a number of of instances, whether it be uh, Aubrey or Breonna Taylor. I mean, these are things that were already... Um, sort of in the environment. And, and to be quite frank, um, as as not only a person of color, but more specifically as an African American, you tend to be more acutely aware and impacted by these. Um, the difference was the pandemic created in a sense a moment where so much of what we would normally do was put on pause, just simple things like, uh, you know, sporting events on, on television or things like that. And so I think it created this moment where in a very striking way, Uh, we all experienced something um, that, frankly, was reprehensible. Uh, But what that allowed is an opportunity, and and, and the opportunity I took was to say, I'm going to make this dialogue real. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to help people understand that it's not just something that happens to people that they don't know. Uh, But for my colleagues that I work with, others in the industry, What I hoped to do uh, was two things, Uh, give a voice to the silent pain that many were suffering, but also invite others to an open dialogue, one that we're not really accustomed to usually having.
1: Thank you for sharing that. So parenthetically, I'm a big believer in the power of of storytelling, and I just want to mention something that I heard recently that I think is so true. Michelle Norris said we hear a lot about how divided we are as a nation, but words are how we find each other is what she said. Words are the connective tissue that allow us to listen and find one another. And by giving voice to your story, by using those words, you really have done that. So thank you for that. You ended your June letter with the words, be encouraged. Are you encouraged?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I would say overall uh, I'm encouraged, but I, I'll be very frank, I, I'm circumspect. Uh, And the reason I'm circumspect is because if you think about what we're experiencing now, this is not the first time that, as a society or as a nation, we've been at these kind of moments. You know, I think about the deep conversations I had with my parents and and their experiences, uh, and and, and the experiences of the civil rights movement, or even times before that. And so we've been at times where we've had significant civil unrest, where we've wrestled uh, with issues of race and racism. Uh, where, when my parents would have hoped that if they were having this conversation decades later, my experience would be dramatically different. And in so many ways, the conversation that they had with me and now the conversations I have with my young adult sons uh, are the same. What I am optimistic about is the kind of response uh, that I'm seeing in the dialogue today, frankly, is different, particularly like in the workplace, than I've ever experienced in my 26-year career. So I feel like our starting point in terms of people listening with their heads and their hearts are different. I think we all have to accept, though, that this so- social construct that we have as, as race uh, is really embedded. And there is a lot of work that must be done for us to evolve, uh, really, the impacts that we see throughout society.
1: So you've used a phrase before that, that I really like. You say you're a prisoner of hope. Can you maybe expand on that just a little bit?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's one, you know, especially uh, being uh, an executive and a business person, right? Um, there is uh, this tension that you have. I'm, I'm, I'm on one level of pragmatist, but I think all effective leaders have uh, that, that strain of optimism, uh, that ability to reach deep down and say, uh, I, I ask this question of, of my team all the time. What are the conditions under which we can do it? And and I refuse to accept uh, that in a society as as wonderful as we have, with all the things that we have accomplished over time, with the ingenuity that we have, with the goodness that I see in people, uh, that our ability to advance in a meaningful way on race relations is impossible. I do get discouraged sometimes with things I experience personally or that I see uh, in broader society. But you're that prisoner of hope because you have interactions like the one we're having today that encourage you to say, you know, people are listening, people care. And that's what remains. And that's what continues in terms of keeping you that prisoner of hope.
1: So it's really difficult, well, not even possible, I don't think, to have a conversation about race without, in passing, mentioning the context of the U.S. presidential elections. So this past spring, the nation witnessed the murder of George Floyd and the individual and corporate responses were visceral and public. People seemed to feel the pain and the injustice and the impact was shown in the polling. So if you fast forward to the election, voters were concerned about sort of three things, the economy, the pandemic and racial inequality, but there was quite a stark divide. Uh, Many voters prioritized the economy over racial uh, racial inequality according to the exit polls. So the science was broken, people listened, they saw, maybe they were temporarily compelled, what now? Where to from here?
0: Right. Well, I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, if you think about, you know, what, it, I mean, it's, it's proven over time the impact uh, that not only actual economic conditions, but people's perceptions of the health of economy uh, have on uh, their disposition as, as as far as their voting. Uh, I think one of the 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 things where we have an opportunity is uh, part of that. I think is a bit of a failing uh, because uh, we present many times uh, the arrangement, whether it's directly or indirectly, as if one group benefits, then another group loses. And the practical reality is there's so much good research that shows actually if we were to counteract many of the uh, outcomes that we have from institutional racism it's not just that um, you know marginalized racial groups benefit the practical reality is society as a whole benefits we benefit economically which is an area that people are greatly concerned about uh, but more than that we we benefit in ways that you know you can't really count by virtue of your checkbook uh, and i think we have an affirmative responsibilities of leaders and it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is to really uh, pronounce in a narrative that shows how we can advance our society and the well-being of all its members by making sure we have a a definitive plan for helping those that are most marginalized.
1: So you've often said race is a very uncomfortable topic. It's the proverbial third rail. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, Michelle Norris. Um, How do we sort of lean into that discomfort? She's often said that this is a very uncomfortable topic, but people have to be comfortable with that discomfort. How do we get people to have open conversations, candid conversations, courageous conversations?
0: I think you have to do something really important. You have to make it personal. And here's what I mean. Um, our, our unfortunate and impractical reality is the vast majority of people live in monolithic communities. They live in communities uh, with people who share uh, their racial background Uh, their religious uh, affiliations with people who are in the same socioeconomic background. And so our practical reality is most people do not have intimate relationships with people that are not like them. And so if you're going to have a difficult conversation, right, uh, what, what, what needs to be in place is there has to be some proverbial personal and relational capital in the well. So the most important thing that we can do as individuals is actually have genuine, meaningful and intimate relationships with people that are different from us.
1: So Michelle has started the Race Card Project, which was asking people to share what she calls these micro-memoirs of just six words um, telling their story about race and identity And I wanted to ask you what your six-word micro-memoir would be.
0: Yeah, well, I would say this. uh, Being a person of deep, abiding faith, I would say, you know, race makes distinctions where God has none.
1: Great, thank you for that. So your gift, uh, Shandron, to the industry has been in demonstrating how to make diverse senior uh, appointments. Um, when the popular industry narrative really is that it's not possible or it's too hard to do without compromising, you have a very diverse leadership at Northern Trust Asset Management and you've hired and promoted many of the executive uh, on that team. How have you done it and what can others learn from the process so that they too can build diverse teams?
0: Right. I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, I I am so fortunate to work with the wonderfully diverse team that we have. You know, I've uh, shared before, if I just look at my direct reports, and and in in an industry that's very male-dominated, I I have five of my nine direct reports are women who have significant responsibilities, including leading uh, P&Ls. We have people that are ethnically diverse on our team, not only my direct reports, but our larger team. And I tell people all the time, we didn't get there on accident, we got there on purpose. But what did we do on purpose? Because I want to be clear, by acting on purpose and intentionally, we didn't disadvantage anybody. But what we did is we made sure that opportunity was equitable. How did we do that? One, we said, let's take a hard look at the processes by which we go to to actually interview people or new candidates or consider people uh, for promotions. And we just realized that the funnel that we were using, the way that we had certain informal practices, did not create equitable opportunities. We said that we were going to uh, really profile the talent that we have because we felt like if we showed to the marketplace that we were a place that was diverse and valued diversity, uh, that we would attract other diverse people. And lo and behold, we did. And the last thing I would say, um, which was actually the first thing we did, is we really articulated very clearly our values. So we have uh, five shared values. Uh, We talk about passion. Uh, competence. We talk about humility and intellectual uh, curiosity, but uh, one of those five is diversity. And so when that becomes part of your lexicon and your narrative, when people believe in that shared value um, uh, and you have the right kind of practices and processes, you can have those kinds of outcomes. You
1: also think a lot about, not just about the values, which are like is the pillars and the foundation uh, of the firm, but also about the words equity, inclusion and diversity and what those mean. Can you share how you think about those please?
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important because we started with a conversation around diversity and today people talk explicitly about diversity, equity and inclusion. Diversity uh, more than not is about diverse representation. So making sure that we reflect all the wonderful diversity that we find in society and we're creating the opportunities for people uh, to become part of everything we're doing at every level. Uh, Inclusion is about making sure not only that you have a seat at the table, but you have a voice. And so that not only are we inviting people's input, but we're making sure our culture is such uh, that people feel valued in that culture, that they feel seen, that they're not two-dimensional, they're um, uh, three-dimensional, that they are part of the overall mix. And then equity. Equity to me is about two things. It's about having access to opportunities, but it's also about ownership. So that making sure that people of all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of uh, diverse representation also have true equity and ownership in everything that we're doing
1: so if we think uh to sort of 2020 and you ask anyone to sort of describe this year one of the words i think would come up a lot is exhaustion or exhausted (laughs) you lead a large team uh, at northern trust asset management you care deeply about your people People are exhausted from the pandemic, uh, from an election cycle, all kinds of things, remote working. What does compassionate leadership look like?
0: You know, um, compassionate leadership looks like this. You know, I, 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 I'm a voracious le- uh, reader. I'm a lover of words. But com- compassion means, in simple terms, to suffer with. So to me, uh, compassion is not about intellectual sin. It, it means that I'm willing to, as much as possible, to, to come alongside, to put myself in the place of someone else, to understand if they are suffering in some way, um, that I need to, in a sense, be able to feel that. Um, and then if I feel it, it's going to be my natural human response to actually lend a hand to that suffering. And so, again, uh, whether it's in simple things like engaging with uh, uh, our, we could say partners for our employees, our employees, but beyond that, the community, understanding what's really important to them, not looking at them as a cog on a will, but people who have real lives and real lives that are being pressed on every measure in the kind of environment that we're in, uh, doing that in, in very will and intentional and personal ways, to me, is what compassionate leadership is founded upon.
1: Thank you, so i love to end our conversation with with two key questions that I I ask all of our guests, and and one is fairly recent. Um, One is that I saw on a NASA education site, Uh, it's a module that asks students to think about the idea of if you were going on a a long duration space flight and you could bring one object along with you, what would that object be and why? So I've been asking my guests that same question. If you're about to hop on a long duration uh, flight, you can only bring one thing along, what would you take along?
0: Gosh, um, uh, For me, um, it, w- it would be a book, but for me, um, since I only get one thing, it would be a certain kind of book. Uh, I, one of the things we're, we're, we're keen to do with our family is uh, when we do uh, trips uh, together or different things like that, we'll, uh, uh, my wife got us in, in this practice of creating a book to, to remember it. And so both the pictures and the notes that we have, they tell stories, And for me, if I was going on a long flight, you know, my family is so important and so dear to me. The stories that weave the narrative of our lives, they are a part of me. And I can't think of doing any meaningful experience and certainly being separated from some period of time without having reminders of them and things that I can reflect on to give me the emotional energy that I need every day.
1: And so my closing question is something I borrowed from comedian Trevor Noah very early on in the pandemic. He started closing every segment with what he called sort of "the your ray of sunshine. And so in this sort of COVID pandemic, I've been trying to close every conversation with what I call the ray of sunshine question, which really is something along the lines of, of what do you hope will be a lasting positive outcome as a result of the pandemic?
0: Yeah. You know, the thing um, that I hope will be a really lasting part of the pandemic, the, the best way I can describe it is um, there's a certain measure of grace you find in every situation. And, and what, it, what the pandemic has forced us to do in certain ways is to pause and to stop and to reflect and to listen. And I think we spend so little of our time reflecting and listening. We spend so much in the busyness of life. I actually pray that while I want the health situation to mend and improve and the economic situation to improve and mend, I pray we don't lose that. That ability that we've rediscovered, that thing we've rekindled to to reflect and to pause and to think and to just listen. And most importantly, to listen to one another.
1: Well, Shandron, I've so enjoyed listening to you today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so very much for your time today.
0: As well, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.